Gress. Thank you. If we could have the roll call, Helen. Sure thing. Um, Board Member Cisneros? Here. Curtis? Here. Hom? Here. Rothenberg? Here. Vice President Ruiz? Here. Board Member Teague? Here. And President Sahaba? Present. We have a quorum. Okay, great. Uh, we'll go on to item number four, agenda changes and discussion. Um, is there anyone with anything to state? In this? Yeah. Yes, uh, one quick note from staff. Um, I do want to point out that uh, item 9A, the staff communication report out on um, planning director decisions. The um, proposed wireless facilities at 916 Union Street, that has not been acted on. City staff received a number of comments from the neighborhood and we are working with the applicant um, to look at those issues and uh, we will be re-noticing that project in the future. So that, that project was not approved and we're mo moving that from this list. Okay, thanks. Um, okay, so- President uh, Sahaba? Yes, yes. Uh, I, I would like us to defer the board elections until the next meeting. Uh, as there is a hope potentially a new board member coming on and we typically wait. No, that makes sense. We need to, uh, I, that sounds good. I, I guess that's item 7C. So we'll continue that item to the next, next meeting. Okay, so on the consent calendar, it looks like we have a an item, but that will be continued as well to the next meeting on July 25th. So we'll hold off on um, commenting on that. So now we're at the regular agenda items. Oh, President Sahaba, um, I believe we have uh, oral communications agenda item five before we go there. Thank to, you. Uh, Sorry, I, items. I skipped that. Sorry. Thank, thanks. Thanks. Okay. Anyone may address the board on a topic not on the agenda under this item uh, by raising your hands. Uh, if you'd like to speak, please raise your hand. Uh, currently, no one is raising their hand on this item. Okay. Thanks. All right. Uh, now let's uh, go to the consent calendar. As I mentioned, this item will be continued onto the July 25th uh, planning board meeting. So we'll go to our regular agenda items. Uh, 7A is a public workshop to review and comment on the draft zoning amendment to implement May 2022 draft housing element. Uh, any discussion on, or presentation? Yes, President Sahaba, this is Andrew Thomas, Planning, Building, and Transportation Director. I'll give a brief presentation. Um, in tonight's packet, uh, we published the July 1st, 2022 Draft Housing Element Update Zoning Amendments. Um, this is a document that we have been working with the Planning Board and the Alameda community on for almost a year now. Um, and it is substantially complete. Um, since your last meeting a month ago, at which the planning board provided a number of comments, um, 
staff has continued to refine and polish this document. So the staff report describes the major changes that we made as a result of the um, adjustments and the comments received at your last board meeting. Um, tonight is an opportunity for the planning board to hear additional comments from the community and to make any additional suggestions for refinements to this document. Um, and there are two areas that staff would like to highlight in particular um, that we would love to get some just additional thoughts on. But before I get to those two comments, just in terms of big picture process and schedule, um, we have been polishing and refining this document, um, but we don't wanna finish it yet. We want to wait until we've heard back from the State Department of Housing and Community Development on our draft housing element. This entire document, this entire purpose is to implement the draft housing element. And we hope to hear back from uh, the State Department of Housing and Community Development sometime between now and late August. So really what we're trying to do is get this ready in the hopes that the state will very will find our housing element in compliance with state law and that we'll be able to bring back the housing element to the planning board in September, hopefully if all goes well, um, with minor amendments to, to address any housing uh, State Department comments um, on that housing element. And if, if that is the scenario, then we'll be able to bring this back at that time as well, because we'll have a housing element instead of zoning amendments that implement that housing element. The other scenario that might play out is we hear back from the, the state and they find significant problems with our draft housing element. If they do, we will have to fix those problems in the housing element. And we may have to make substantial changes to this document as well. So really tonight is a chance to continue to refine this document and um, get it in the best possible state um, so that it is ready um, in September. If, it's, if we're ready to recommend the housing element to the council at that time, then this will be ready. If we have to make re major revisions to the housing element at that time, then we'll probably have to make major revisions to this document as well. The two areas that we are particularly interested in hearing from the board and the, and the um, public on are the area, the uh, shopping center overlay zoning district, where we made some important changes and we'd like to just quickly review those with you. And the other is the, um, the transit-oriented housing waiver section. Um, the the uh, multifamily, excuse me, the community mixed-use combining district. This is the overlay district that we are proposing for the four shopping centers. So we're talking about the South Shore Shopping Center, the Harbor Bay Shopping Center, the Marina Village Shopping Center, and the um, Alameda Landing Shopping Center. And the important change that we have made is we have established a sort of precondition to be eligible for multifamily housing. And that precondition is specifically, and we, and we highlighted this in the staff report, the precondition of course, is that you're actually a shopping center. And the scenario that we're really trying to guard against, and this, this really came up in the recent community meetings at Harbor Bay where we had a whole series of 
very lively community conversations about additional housing in Harbor Bay, a lot of lively conversations about housing at the Harbor Bay Shopping Center. And one of the really, I think, most important points that a lot of residents made to us is, okay, we get it. We need to add housing at the shopping center. We're willing to accept that. But we cannot afford to lose the shopping center itself. A scenario whereby a property owner of, let's say, a shopping center says, oh, great, now I can do housing. I'll get rid of all the shopping and just do housing. That's a scenario we can't afford as a community. We need both the shopping center and the housing, but we don't want to sacrifice the shopping center for the housing. So what we did in this section is we um, added a essentially a precondition that to be eligible for the housing, thank you, Alan, you need to have a minimum amount of square footage of commercial shopping center. And this section specifies essentially what that minimum requirement is. Um, obviously for the, and as you can see, it's sort of, it's, it's really uh, organized around a ratio, a ratio of about um, uh, uh, 9,000 9, square feet per acre. Um, and, and that was also, we looked at how much commercial square footage is in each of those shopping centers today. So um, the lowest is about 9,000 square feet per acre. The higher uh, shopping centers have more than that per acre, but we wanted to do two things. One is we wanted this, these numbers here for each of the shopping centers to reflect roughly what was there today, although in some cases they reflect less. Um, we also wanted there to be a rationale so that we weren't treating one shopping center differently than the other. So that's why if you do the math on this, you'll see, oh, it's roughly 9,000 square feet of commercial per acre. Um, so we'd very much like to get your thoughts on this um, uh, or any comments from the public on this section. The next section that I'd like to just quickly highlight is the transit-oriented housing waivers section at section 30-5.10. This is a, a concept that the planning board and the community and staff, we've been talking about for the last year and a half. The concept is pretty simple. If we're gonna add housing in the residential districts and in the commercial districts, we wanna put housing where the transit is. We want transit-oriented housing. Our biggest single issue in Alameda around housing is, well, what about the effect on transportation? So this concept of, of putting housing near transit is a, um, is a concept that we've been working on a lot through the general plan and the housing element. So what this waiver does is it, it says, hey, if you're building House, if you want to add housing units within a quarter mile of a high quality transit corridor, um, we will waive the minimum density standards. So you still have to meet the height limit. You still have to meet the setbacks. You still need to meet the lot coverage, all the form-based standards you still need to meet, but we will relieve you of the density standard. So it's a form-based approach. The issue that we 
talked about, the planning board raised a little bit last month and staff went back and discussed it. And we, we spent a lot of time talking about this and it's an interesting sort of policy question. We originally set this up as we wanna encourage units near transit. That's, that goes without saying. And we want them to be small and affordable units, which is a good policy objective. So our original draft came out with you, if you're with, it's essentially established two criteria for the waiver from density. One, you need to be within a quarter mile of transit, high quality. And two, every new unit you build needs to be 1,000 square feet or smaller. And that was sort of our, that was our sort of placeholder for quote, small and affordable. We're like, well, that's small. And if it's small, 1,000 square feet or less, it'll be affordable by definition. Um, at the last meeting, several board members raised questions about that and said, well, hmm, you know, and uh, I won't try to paraphrase the questions, but the, the direction that we received and the questions we received from the board were, well, wait a second, maybe we need to have, maybe we need to think about it in terms of bedroom size. Maybe we want just one bedrooms and some two bedrooms and no three bedrooms, or maybe we do want some three bedrooms. Um, and so staff went back and thought about it and we talked about it quite a bit internally. And we decided, well, if the objective is, is small and affordable, the planning board, the, excuse me, the city council kind of went through this whole conversation when we did the SB9 amendments. And the planning board discussed the SB9 amendments for the R1 district and decided 1,200 square feet was a good threshold because that's what second units are. And then the, the city council went through this conversation and they debated at length, like, well, we want small and affordable units are important to us in, in the R1 district. So they lowered the threshold from 1,200 to 1,000. So staff, after we discussed this next, this issue of the transit-oriented waivers, we sort of said, wait a second, well, the council's already been through this conversation. They already defined small and affordable for, S for the purposes of SB9 as a thousand square feet. But as we were talking about it, we really started questioning ourselves, well, wait a second, there is a need for two and three bedroom units in Alameda. And there is a need for, and why are we saying, if you want to build housing near transit and you have to meet the height limit, you have to meet the setbacks. So the building is, we're already determining what the size of the building is. Why are we saying that it, you can't do a three bedroom unit? Like what is the public purpose in that? And, and we just wanted to sort of raise this question. We don't have a good answer. Like, if you're, if the policy, and it really is, we think a policy decision to be made by the planning board and city council. You can absolutely structure this section to say, no, the goal is to have small units near transit. That is what we really need. There's definitely a need for small and affordable. The housing element existing conditions report documents that. There is absolutely a need. So it's absolutely appropriate to say we want only small, units and small is a is a sort of a placeholder for more affordable so 
we want to come up with a threshold that ensures that everything is small. There is another factor though that, and another set of facts that are also true. There are families that need bigger units that also want to live near transit. Are the units, the market rate units that we are building in Alameda are getting smaller and smaller. Um, as many of the planning board members may remember, may know or remember the market rate units that are being that are being proposed in projects like Block 11 at Alameda Point, the Shipways project, the redesign of the Del Monte building, um, the uh, launch, I forget what we call it, launch A or the launch building at, at Marina, Alameda Marina, that the first big building that's under construction, it's completely framed out now at Alameda Marina. The private sector projects that are coming to Alameda and that are being built today are primarily small, very small units. Studios, one bedrooms, two bedrooms, a tiny fraction of the market rate units that are being built in multifamily buildings uh, by the private sector today are, are large three bedroom units. So it's just a, a, a another factor for us all to be thinking about and talking about is how do we wanna structure this transit-oriented housing waiver? We're trying to encourage housing next to trans near transit, that clear policy objective there. But I think the really the question is, do you want to limit the units to just a size? Or do you wanna limit them to just a certain number of bedrooms? Or do you wanna just let the, let the Alameda property owners do whatever size unit they want, as long as, and in all cases, whatever the building is, it's going to meet the height limit, it's going to meet the setback or limits, and it's going to meet this lot coverage limits of that district. So how, whatever you choose to do is not going to change the size of the building. It may change the number of units that gets built in that building. And it may affect the size of those units, but it won't affect the size of the building. So I hope that wasn't too confusing. Um, those are the two areas that we really wanted. If you have any thoughts on those two provisions, um, there are two provisions that, that city staff, our, our zoning team, which is myself and Alan, David Sablon, Alan, um, Henry Dong, uh, Heather Coleman, Selena Chen, that we've, that's the zoning team. It's the five of us. We've just been debating and discussing these issues. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on those two or anything else about the package of zoning amendments. I'll, I'll wrap up with that. Thank you, board, for taking the time to talk about these things. Thanks, Director Thomas, for framing the conversation. Uh, board Member Curtis, you, we'll, we'll go through board questions, uh, clarifications, and then open it for uh, public comment. Uh, thank you, thank you, President Zahaba. Um, Andrew, that was that was a great presentation with regard to size versus bedrooms, but the, the reality is, in, in in my perspective and from the experience that I've had from the other side, from the developer side, is that as long as the building footprint is the same, and as long as it's there, the thing that's going to set 
the units is the, is the market. What can these guys sell? You know, you talk about low cost housing is price. You talk about near transit, that's all, that's all consumer oriented. But the reality is these guys are, are really working hard with the challenge of keeping costs down in a rising market, number one. And number two, providing a, a package that's sexy enough at a low price to bring in families of all dimensions and give good value. And that, that needs, means that we need in anything that we write to give flexibility to the developer to be able to build something that, that he can make a profit with and provide a product to the, the um, consumer that they wanna buy. Otherwise, you know, if you put these constraints and they build it and they make a mistake, they're stuck with a, with a bunch of um, units that they can't sell, which would be a disaster. Yeah. I, that's, the more, I'm, the, I, the more, excuse me. No, you go ahead, Ron, finish. I'm just saying that the more flexibility within, within the ordinances that we can give the developer, the greater the chance that there'll be more people living in these houses and they'll get built faster and with, with a lot less problems for the developer, because the worst thing that could happen to the consumer is for the developer to get stuck and a product project to get stuck, especially a multi-unit project in a, in a good location. So we should do everything that we can, not only to, to build units, but to be sure that the build units are built successfully. I, I'm, I appreciate, thank you very much for that question. Two immediate thoughts. One is, I think from staff's perspective, there is, uh, we would agree with you that there is a danger to sort of over-regulating these things, trying to over-prescribe, over-manage, and, you know, Maybe we should focus on the things we really care about, the height, the location, and let the market determine sort of what happens within those parameters. The other thing that I just wanted, I think it was, I'm glad you asked the question the way you did, because you did highlight something that we've talked about that I didn't mention. This is a, this is a overlay district that's gonna affect property owners in the residential zones. These are of uh, this overlay district is affecting essentially existing Alameda homeowners and property owners that might be interested in adding units. There's not very much vacant land. So when you mention the developers, um, in our mind, what the developers, when we're talking about this ordinance, are Alameda homeowners, Alameda property owners. They might own a small apartment building, you know, on Santa Clara or Buena Vista or, you know, um, but we're not thinking in our minds, this is not like Alameda Point. This is not like um, the Northern Waterfront where we're dealing with these large projects of 50 to 100 units. This in our mind is a, a, a zoning ordinance that for somebody on Santa Clara who owns a duplex and wants to add, you know, two or three more units to it, it's a 5,000 square foot lot. Like they run up about against that density standard real fast, but this waiver would allow them to add, you know, 
a handful of units to that building. So it's an assumption. I don't, we don't know, you know, we don't know who we'll be dealing with. And you, you raise a good point. We really don't know who we'll be dealing with. We don't know what their economics are going to be. We don't know what their investment strategy is going to be. Um, and I think you kind of bring it back to the real, the big question. How much do we want to sort of micromanage this? And how much do we want to just let the market do what we want and focus on the things that we, we think we care about the most, which I think is we want to facilitate housing near transit and we care about the height limits. We care about the, the form of the buildings. Um, but so it, these are just interesting questions to, to discuss. Just to be clear, when I said developer, I should have said applicant. It yeah. doesn't matter the, the person who wants to do the building. The yeah. more flexibility they have, the better the probability that's going to be successful. And that's, that's what, what we, we and we kind of, we talked about this in this way at staff and our little staff team were like, well, so a property owner comes in and says, Hey, I want to add two units on my, on the back of my house for my, for my, uh, my kid and his, his wife and their two little babies. And I also have a friend and his wife and they're going to, and we're like, Oh, I'm sorry. You want to do two, three bedroom units? No, you can't do it. Sorry. Sorry, you're not eligible for the waiver. Oh, and you don't have, and you you bumped up against the density cap. I'm sorry, you've got, you're out of luck. I mean, even though it's the same size building, the same size addition, we say, oh, but you can do four one bedroom units if you want. And the, and the property owner says, well, wait a second. I don't want four one bedroom units. I just want two, three bedroom units. I'm sorry, you can't do that. I mean, that's, that's the sort of awkward conversation. We were thinking like, wait a second, are we overthinking this? Yeah, and if I might add, I think when you're looking at the um, housing element technical um, analysis that we've done, the demographics show that um, if you are a large family in Alameda and we've identified about a thousand, nearly a thousand households in that category, and um, you are renting, you're gonna have a hard time finding affordable units that are large enough to accommodate your large family. And what we're also finding too is there is some um, concentration of these larger households and the overcrowding issue over on the West End. So both from a, you know, trying to steer, and, and just one more note on that, uh, project like Del Monte, 360 units, even with the inclusionary housing, there's out of that whole project, only there's only one three bedroom unit that's coming out of the inclusionary program there. So, you know, as staff is drafting these regulations, we're, we're mindful of, okay, is there something that government needs to step in to do to be able to do something that developers or applicants um, aren't? Um, aren't going to do because of, of economic trends. So that's something that we are we are um, thinking about. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Thanks. Thanks for your question, Board Member Curtis. Uh, Board Member Rothenberg. Hey, that that was very good um, overview and and discussion. But just re relative to the transit-oriented housing and Director Thomas's question about how to write it. I mean, has been my experience too in contributing to statutory language that the more prescriptive it is, the, the, the less usable it is to the jurisdiction. So I think the, a breadth of less prescriptive language. So with that in mind, the it doesn't seem to me that the um, housing element draft has a definition for affordable. So if you don't, prescribe the 
square footage and you don't prescribe the number of bedrooms and we don't have a definition for affordable, does, can you remind us, does state law actually define affordable or is there some way in the language without, with, in, a, in the least prescriptive way to achieve what you've uh, described in regard to transit-oriented housing to give the kind of, of breadth that um, applicants, as, um, as board member Curtis said, that the applicants might find productive. Well, I think I think there's you know we're, we're not proposing to deed restrict these units. Um, that's the way that historically the city has de determined what is defined as affordable or not. Um, we have then over the years started talking about with the council and the planning commission about well affordable by design. That's the sort of terminology we've used, which is really a fancy way of saying, well, it's not deed restricted, but it's designed to be less expensive, which very quickly translates to just floor area, you know, small. Um, and then there is a third criteria um, that is, out there, I'm not sure how useful it is in this context, but the state does, 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 there is legislation on the books that basically says, if your zoning allows for 30 units the acre or more, you are, those are, if a, a unit in a building of 30 units per acre or more is, is going to be an affordable unit. It's just going to be, the, the cost of that unit is going to be affordable to most households. Um, I think it's, um, so I, I think the bigger, larger question is, is the goal to, is the goal to just build, get as much housing built as close to transit as possible? Because that's just a good thing. Housing units near transit, good. Or is the goal also on top of that to make sure that those units that are built are affordable? We've never proposed that we deed restrict them. So the really question is, do you wanna to try to make them affordable by design? And that's where the thousand foot criteria comes in or something different. It doesn't have to be a thousand feet. It could be 800, it could be 1200, it could be two units or less, I mean, excuse me, two bedroom units or less or you know, but I think those are your sort of three different ways of thinking about it. But I, I think the base question is, do you want to try to limit these units to just some form of affordable by design, i.e. small? Okay, thank you. Uh, board member Cisneros, questions? Yeah, uh, thank you so much for the overview. Um, I do have uh, thoughts on this topic, but I'll um, hold off until the discussion portion. Um, just a quick clarification question, and I'm sorry if you said this in your report, um, but uh, there was a comment, um, a ring comment asking about Bridgeside Shopping Center. Um, and so with the four identified shopping centers, um, I was just curious as to the reasoning, um, like that wasn't considered for the 
um, the, I forget what it's called, community. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, we we dealt with the Bridgeside Shopping Center in the North Park Street zoning mm-hmm. changes. So um, we did um, adjust the North Park Street zone so, because so, that's in the North Park Street zone. Mm-hmm. So in that case, we knew we were amending the North Park Street zoning district. We knew the bridge side was in the North Park Street zoning district. So we took care of the what we felt were the necessary zoning amendments for that shopping center in the North Park Street zoning district. Okay, in a way that allows for housing and still retain, okay, retaining the Well, that's store. a good question. We should go back mm-hmm. and look at that. And this idea of retaining the commer- the retail, um, the North Park Street is not as detailed in terms of those issues as, as we have done in our multifamily overlay for the other four. So we should go back and look at that. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I have thoughts, but I'll, I'll talk, share it later uh, because they're not questions regarding um, great discussion, Andrew. Thanks for kind of framing the issue regarding the shopping center, especially regarding the, um, the transit zone. Um, but anyway, uh, I had a couple of questions and uh, one that's really carrying off of what uh, Board Member Cenarios was mentioning. Uh, I was, was reviewing the letter from um, AAPS and one of the questions or one of the points that was made was that the existing north, the existing zoning for Bridgeside Shopping Center does not allow for residential. Am, am I reading that wrong? And so, so I was reading that the proposal was to rezone it to CMU, which would be more permissive for residential. I found that a little surprising of a point. Am I misunderstanding that? Yeah, that doesn't sound right. I'll, I'll look at it um, while you're taking public comment. Yeah, I, I, I might have misread what the, um, what the, what the AAPS wrote. So they might clarify it in the public comments. Okay. Um, also, uh, there was a point made that the ADU height limit uh, is allowed to be up to 25 feet if they meet certain requirements. Is that new or did I just miss it the last go around? Because I know the height limit was 16. Is, is, and if that's new, how did that come about or what's the staff rationale for that? So, so staff is proposing to increase that height limit to 25 feet, provided yeah. that it meets certain requirements. Yeah. Um, it's also tracking a pending um, bill in the state legislature that would do the same thing. It would be the same. Okay, I didn't, wasn't aware there was a bill that was was talking about allowing for basically two-story detached. Yeah, basically two-story. And and that's actually feedback from a lot of the applicants we've gotten over the years uh, with ADUs wanting to just, you know, um, they may have a smaller backyard. They want the square footage uh, to accommodate, you know, larger family. And so that's the question about a a two-story option. Oh, okay. 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 So that is kind of a, a new provision that got added. Okay. Yeah. I thought maybe I missed it previously. Those are essentially my questions. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, I'll just, um, before we open it up to public comment, uh, the only question I have at the moment is just what, uh, with the community mixed use um, district that 
is being proposed. How do we come up with the 65 foot height limit? Um, as in, un unless the underlying, underlying zoning provides greater height limit, where, where did the 65 feet come from? Uh, it's been in there for a while. I think we were thinking um, that, you know, a, a, a five-story building is about minimum that's possible and still being, based on our conversations with developers in these zones, a five-story building, four, four, four floors of residential over ground floor was really about the minimum that they could do and still maintain financial viability. Um, the Harbor Bay Shopping Center and the South Shore Shopping Center have higher height limits than that. Okay. So really what we're just, when, you, when you're looking, talking about the 65, um, we're talking about um, the Alameda Landing Shopping Center and the Marina Village Marina Shopping Village. Center, which are both zoned MX. So, and they didn't have a prescribed height limit. I see. Okay. But, you know, I think it, you're raising a good point, though. It, it's, you know, a lot of the developers we've talked to have said, look, if you want to do residential over commercial, um, particularly residential over commercial, and you have to provide some parking because you're using up parking in the shopping center, you got to get up there. Like, don't, you know, five stories. 50, 60 feet is the absolute minimum that you can make work. Um, I think the Marina Village Shopping Center and the Alameda Shopping Center, you know, as I sit back here and think about it now, like if there's two shopping centers where you probably could go over 65 feet, um, well, all of them, but those are two locations where, um, you know, a, a six story building would not look out of place, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Okay. And I believe we started by um, first looking at the height limits on Park Street. What's already on Park Street? I believe it's 60 feet, five stories. And we gave it five more feet just um, to, to accommodate sort of a uh, uh, higher ceiling on the ground floor to accommodate commercial. So I think that's how we landed on 65. Landed at 65, yeah. Okay. Started right. with 60, looked at 65. All right, that's helpful insight. Okay, uh, why don't we open this up for public comment? If you'd like to speak on this item, please raise your hand. You'll have uh, three minutes. Uh, if we could have the first speaker, please. The first speaker will be Karen Bay. Uh, good evening. Um, pleasant to have a planning board meetings, uh, uh, plan, planning board members and staff. Um, I think it's very important that the retail gains that we made in the general plan, the 2040 document, be implemented in these zoning code amendments. Um, my first comment that I issued in the paper um, that I submitted tonight focuses on the need to distinguish between commercial, ground floor commercial and ground floor retail. And that's because the, of the introduction of new ground floor commercial uses, such as ADUs, work live studios, 
bed and breakfast facilities and art studios. If we aren't specific in using retail land uses in our plan developments, um, instead of commercial land uses, we could see a potential void of all of the retail gains that we adopted in the general plan. So one consideration is to establish a specific retail square footage requirement based on the number of housing units in each of the plan developments. Retail is an important amenity in our Alameda community and we want to make sure that these um, are, are established uh, based on the new the general plan that was, that was uh, approved and adopted. Um, I'm also concerned about potentially combining smaller stores in our shopping centers um, and creating large format shopping centers like the Westgate Large Format Center in San Leandro anchored by a Home Depot. I don't think that's what Alameda wants. We want our you know, neighborhood serving retail centers, not large format centers. Um, uh, also wanted to consider hotels on the Webster Street District without a use permit. Uh, the North Park Street District allows it. Finally, water shuttles have been approved in Oakland, Jack London Square and Oakland, Brooklyn Basin. Um, development and both shuttles have targeted Alameda as a destination shop. So we wanna make sure we are careful about significantly reducing retail in our shopping districts um, because we could experience significant uh, retail leakage. Um, on the other hand, I think we have an opportunity to um, increase retail in our shopping districts based on these new um, water shuttles. So I think it's very important that we look at that and be very careful about giving it up, giving up our retail. Once we do, it's, it's gone. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> thank you. Next speaker, please. The next speaker will be Christopher Buckley. Christopher Buckley with the Alameda Architectural Preservation Society. We'd like to reiterate our comments, previous comments that most of the various forms of upzoning proposed in the draft housing element and the zoning amendments within all of the residential zoning districts and historic commercial areas appear unnecessary to meet the RENA and state fair housing requirements. We still have not been able to find anything in state law or published NHCD guidelines that mandate such sweeping and indiscriminate upzonings everywhere. For example, the transit waiver uh, covers too large an area focus instead on targeted nodes to start with along the transit corridor itself and or within perhaps an eighth of a mile rather than a quarter mile and see how it goes for perhaps several years and then if a bigger area is later determined to be needed a larger area could be upzoned then that said i'd like to review some of the comments in the letter that we sent you last night in response to the latest version of the zoning amendments First, we'd like to get the planning board's take on our proposal to require that in all residential zones, the portion of a building over 30 feet be located within the roof envelope using gables and dormers to develop habitable living space to minimize visual bulk, mitigate solar access impacts on neighbors, and so that large new buildings do not look like big boxes. Second, regarding North Park Street, which includes one of the oldest and most historically significant residential areas in Alameda, 
and important historic buildings on the west side of Park Street between Lincoln and Buena Vista Avenues. We'd like to thank staff for reducing the residential subarea height limit from the previously proposed 45 feet to 40 feet. This is still one story higher than the existing 30 foot height limit, but could be workable, we think, if the portion of the building above 30 feet is included in the roof envelope, like I just described, and exceptions to those height provisions triggered by density bonus projects can be avoided. But the height limits in the other subdistricts are still excessive, especially the mixed use subdistrict where an increase from the current 35 foot height limit to 50 feet is proposed. Here we've got an image of the, some of the residential portion of the North Park Street area with very historic buildings. Can we have the next um, image, please? Which will show part of the workplace, pardon me, the mixed use sub area, but it looks like we aren't seeing that image, but basically there's significant concentrations. There we go. So that's in the mixed use area. Also some, you know, very um, architecturally valuable buildings. And there's a third image, if we could see that. Um, anyway, in addition to the height limit question, we continue to recommend North Park Street that the existing one unit for 2,000 square feet of lot area, and, that, and there's that's also in the that image is also in the mixed use area, that the one unit for 2,000 square feet of lot area, especially in the residential mixed use and possibly portions of the workplace district subdistricts, rather than the proposed unlimited density, which could set off a wave of development in this sensitive area, including state density bonus projects. But if more density is desired, it could be in the form of limiting each lot to four units as an alternative to a density bonus project, or as we previously proposed in the form of ADUs. We also continue to recommend that a 40 foot height limit on the west side of Park Street between Lincoln and Buena Vista Avenues uh, to among other things, avoid visual competition with the visual landmark McGee's building, especially the tower. But an alternative might be to allow greater height if it is set back enough, maybe 30 feet to not compete with McGee's. Um, third point uh, regarding the Webster Street and Park Street height limits. We continue to recommend that the proposed 15 foot setback for upper floors be applied to the street side of corner lots in addition to along the front lot line. However, the setback along the street side lines could be reduced for narrow lots, particularly lots with widths of 40 feet and perhaps with a side setback proportional to lot width. Finally, regarding bridge side, AAPS was suggesting, um, had the suggestion because under the workplace zone, you can't, you have to build the residential above existing commercial. You can't build residential by itself. And higher, greater height limit there, 75 feet, that would be fine with us. Thank you. Next speaker, please. The next speaker will be Nancy Manos. I live, sorry, can't get unmuted. I live uh, near Park Street, Buena Vista. I've owned a home here for over 25 years. And I do not understand what the density value waiver is. Could you, someone please explain that? Yeah, this is just the comment period. So after this uh, discussion, we can, we, we can address your comment. Comment, it's only comment right now. So we have to make a comment, nothing to do with it being. Well, that is a comment. No, it's not yeah. a comment, it's a question. You're, okay. asking, you're asking the question. 
Well, if I'm to make a comment, my comment would be that I would hope that we would not be satiating the area with building. Uh, the traffic has gotten very dense in this area. Uh, it's not as safe to walk the streets, not as safe to drive. I don't see how we could accommodate a, uh, a lot more for population. Or forestry. Thank you. Good for you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. The next speaker will be Zach Bowling. Evening planning board, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, so um, I wanted to thank staff for their work on this uh, housing element. It's been a, a long route to get to this point. Um, on upzoning residential, um, it, I wanted to kind of reply to AAPS there. Um, it, upzoning residential only incidentally helps us meet RENA. AAPS is right in that there is no law that says you have to upzone anything under AFFH. In fact, it doesn't prescribe any technique for meeting fair housing because they leave that determination to HCD to, to figure out. And coincidentally, HCD wrote us a letter telling us how we have to meet the guidance that they're giving us, which is prescribed <laughs> in that letter. And that's what a lot of this does um, about upzoning residential. Um, speaking on behalf of East Bay EMB, I just wanted to say we agree with staff that the 50 foot height limits um, are necessary, at least 50 foot um, for building anything that's viable. <laughs> um, anything less could be seen as a barrier to housing. And that's typical um, of what you see in a lot of 501 construction, which is one of the most affordable building techniques for building housing that's affordable by design given current constraints on material and labor costs. Um, so to that point, we're strongly opposed to any calls to reduce um, uh, height limits or even setbacks. Um, but otherwise, uh, we uh, like what staff has done so far and um, uh, want to support uh, the staff report as it is. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. The next speaker will be Kevis Brownson. Hello, planning board uh, and planning director. Thanks for uh, for all the work you've done on the plan. And I am a resident, I live one block east of Park Street and have done so for the last 38 years. And I wanna advocate in, in favor of increased height and density in, on all the transit corridors, but especially Park and Webster. Um, I've seen the fortunes of the merchants on on Park Street wax and wane over the years, and it, there's so many vacant storefronts, increased density would help the merchants. Um, and we are in a, as well as a housing emergency, we are in a, a time when we really need to, to do everything we can for climate change and the best way to do that is to increase the amount of housing that you can um, build on a smaller uh, land area. Um, 
ADUs are very expensive to build that we're not going to be able to like it significantly increase the housing with ADUs and and uh, any SB9 units we might be able to get. Um, I was reading, I don't know if they ever passed it, but the city of Santa Cruz, as you know, has a has a very historic downtown and I was reading a plan that gave um, uh, building owners a height bonus if they were building housing specifically. It gave them a height bonus over what the other height restriction would be. I'm not sure if they passed that, but I thought that was a good idea. Now, I um, am, uh, I have a relative who recently built, a, bought a house, a condo in El Emeryville, which is 565 square feet, affordable by design. And the condos in that go from the studios, which are 565 to, to up to two bedrooms, three bedrooms, two bedrooms are around 800 something, three bedrooms are uh, under a thousand square feet. And uh, he's just happy as a clam. He grew up in Alameda. There is nothing under 400,000 here, you know, that people can afford. So I think affordable by design is something we are seriously lacking and we should encourage it by making space for people to build up. And thank you very much. Thank you. Last speaker, please. Uh, speaker will be Carmen Reed. Hello and good evening planning board. Can you hear me? Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, so I would like to advocate um, for, uh, for smaller units. Um, I strongly believe um, that there is a need for, um, for small units somewhere between 600 to 1,000 square feet. Um, so, uh, so what I have seen is that there are younger entry-level workers who are making, you know, like first year salaries, second year salaries, and, um, you know, smaller units would be really affordable by design, right? So the smaller they are, they will be cheaper. Um, so this could accommodate, you know, as I said, you know, like beginning workers, um, you know, teachers, younger, um, you know, employees, maybe people who were just moving here, also, so I think that that is something that we should be, you know, strongly supporting in our community. Um, I also strongly support AAPS's suggestions regarding height limits. I also think that the McGee's building on Park Street is a um, is a is an architectural gem, and it it really is a highlight and focus of of Park Street. So we we should be considering. Um, the height limits on Park Street to be lower than that building. And, you know, as we see that most of the buildings on Park Street, you know, starting around um, where, you know, Starbucks and, you know, Pete's Coffee are, um, are, you know, somewhere between two to three stories. So my suggestion would be to stay in line with that. Um, and that's all I have to say for tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
this will close the public comment section of our uh, agenda item. Now we'll go to board clarification, or sorry, board um, discussion. Uh, board member Teak. Thank you. Uh, Andrew, I kept all my questions because we usually end up going back and forth anyway. Um, so thank you for the multiple family. Uh, almost there. We still have the MF overlay, which is multi-family. So we should <laughs> fix it or make it all multi-family. I don't care which. Um, but looking at page five, where we talk about the definition of dwelling, you know, I talked about this before. So dwelling unit is really one of our absolute core definitions. And really, I think that the dwelling unit, we should say a dwelling unit means a group of rooms, including sleeping quarters, bath, and not more than one kitchen. Sleeping quarters do not need to be a separate room. And that defines what a dwelling unit is, which I think is what we're saying. But then when we talk about dwelling multifamily, dwelling one family, dwelling two families, we should really say dwelling multifamily is a detached building containing at least three dwelling units. A one family is a detached building containing only one dwelling unit. Two family, a dwelling unit containing exactly two dwelling units. And then everything comes down to dwelling unit. And it's not this kind of talk about a variety of things. And that way, you know, we're clear. We capture the kitchen aspect. We capture the sleeping, which allows for studios. Because uh, right now it's like, does it include a studio? I don't know. Maybe. So here, go ahead. Can you just repeat your your recommendation for that definition of dwelling unit shall mean a dwelling unit shall mean a group of rooms, including sleeping quarters, comma, bath, comma, and not more than one kitchen, period. Sleeping quarters do not need to be a separate room. Yeah. Sleeping, putting, gotcha. And not more than one kitchen. And not more than one kitchen. And then everything else is super simple after that. Everything so else should be super simple. Yes. Your family is two of those. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and looking at that, we're missing the definition of an efficiency unit. And I know I've harped on it, but I really would love us to have a definition of the efficiency unit here so that we can include it elsewhere. And an efficiency unit is smaller than the efficiency unit is really a two room. You got a room and a bathroom and a closet. That's what an efficiency is. So the one room is your combined living, cooking, sleeping. Yeah, studio. Bathroom. It's it's not that different than a studio, but there is state law that talks about efficiency units and they can be teeny tiny. Okay. Um, on page seven, we should change historic structure to mean historical structure, not historic because not everything that's historical is historic. Um, on page eight, we struck out living quarters and we actually use living quarters later on. So like, we can't really strike it out unless we change what we do later on. Because we basically say you can't have living quarters on the ground floor in the commercial districts. 
And if we drop the definition, then we don't know what it means anymore. Good, good point. Um, multiple house, which is condos, basically condos, right? <laughs> and then we drop the whole section. The, there's a whole big section on it, which maybe we don't need that because it's defined in code. Is that right? Is that why that section was dropped? There's at the very end, there's a giant section that we have just completely crossed out about multiple multiple houses. What are you looking at? Okay, so on page 10, we have the definition multiple house. Right. On page 78, we dropped multiple houses section, which defines different requirements for separate utilities, blah, 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 all of that stuff. And we, oh, yes, yes. we did that because it's in state code. Is that right? That's one of the reasons, yes. That's one reason, That's right. One reason, yes. What's now, the other? We, we still reference... But Alan, don't correct me if I'm wrong. We still reference multiple houses in the in the multiple house conversion in the multi section. yeah in the condominium conversion ordinance. Right. Okay. Well, I'll get there. Okay. So then we start talking about the different types of housing, and we talk about there's the senior housing uh, on page eleven, and we don't actually refer to senior housing anywhere. It's an unused definition. Uh, so not sure why we have it, but we probably do need it. And like the other items, we should probably have small and large or small, medium and large in terms of what does it mean? Is it six or less or more than six? So for senior housing and the same thing for shared living is we should really talk about shared living, small, large, small, medium, large. So we allow shared living, but we have no limit on how many people can be there. We do have limits for residential units, uh, you know, the care facilities, uh, daycare, all of that kind of thing. So, you know, I think maybe we need to say shared living small and shared living large and allow those in different zones based on what we want. So you can have six or less for small and more than six for large. I think the problem there, if I may interrupt, is that we have to treat shared living just like residential. But we don't link it to dwelling unit. So unless we're going to link it into dwelling unit, it, it stands by itself, like residential yeah. care. But if we, I think here's the, pro, I think the problem is this. When shared living is a, typically a bunch of unrelated people living in a, living in a house, might have one kitchen. It might be a single family home yep. that you and I would look at and go, that's a single family home. But in fact, it's shared living. It's a bunch of people sharing that house or it's something like a dormitory or SRO or SRO. So the question so is, what how many you, units what, can I have in an SRO? What neighborhood would we allow? I mean, just, just talking it out with you, like, where would we say, oh, it's okay to have a small one, but not a big one. Well, like R1, we say shared living is allowed. Yes, but within the height limit and within the yeah. setback. And I, I, thing, like how many people live in that building is yeah. not, we're not going to regulate that. We're like, as long as you meet the height limit and as long as you meet the setback okay. and you open so space. If, if we do not intend to, to, to regulate it, that the number of units is based on the building envelope. Maybe we should say that. So it's explicit, not implicit. Yep. 
And I'm not arguing against that. No, no. I, I Look, if, if once Alameda is ready to completely eliminate density standards from all districts, then we can get rid of a lot of these definitions. But yeah. as long as we retain density standards in some districts, we're going to need a definition of yeah. unit because that's how you measure density. Yeah. Um, and so that's... So we're right. We're moving. Well, the question this. is, what if I want to build multiple shared living buildings? How does that? What are the restrictions? In, in a that? density, in a zone that, that limits density, yeah. you do it. It's totally form based at that point. Okay, cool. That's fine. Let's just say, add something there that says yep. it's it's limited by uh, building envelope. On page fifteen. Uh, uses, this is R1, uh, uses permitted number two. Why are we limiting it to two one-family dwell, one dwellings as opposed to however many they can fit with the constraints that are there? Or can they have two two-family dwellings? I mean, I don't, they can have actually as many two-family dwellings as they want, but they can only have two one-families. As will fit, I should say. Yeah, this is a this is a little bit of an SB nine messy situation. Um, okay, I'm just going to raise it and leave it with. No, you. no, yeah, it okay. comes down to are you counting the second units? Because remember, in SB nine, it's I, two units plus two. Yeah, yeah. So okay, what we were, I, it's if, a good. If you would think about it and figure out, that's okay. We can clear uh, it up. For some reason, we have said we are not going to allow the development of a condo building in R one by dropping multiple houses a use permit and i don't think i agree with that in fact i don't agree with that i think you should be able to build condos if you want so the striking of that from r1 i'm not in favor of um yeah no that's a that's an interesting question there yeah uh on page 17 when we talk about the residential care facilities large and residential care facilities senior. When we talk about residential care facilities senior, we do have both small and large. So we should just clarify, okay, we mean large, small or large, if that's what we mean. That's on page 17. Um, yeah. And then when we get to page 20 on R2, for some reason we're adding residential care facilities large, where previously it was only small. What was the reasoning for changing that? You're in the R2 now? Yeah, page 20. So the residential care that provides care for no more than six persons is the definition of residential care small. Right. So maybe we meant to say small and just not have that six person because it's in the definition. If you guys would look at it and figure that out, that would be great. Yep. And the same thing is on page 23. And then later on page 26, we also talk about residential care and we don't say small, medium, large. Uh, so that would be that would be great. On page 29 in R5, we so don't can I allow... just can I can I just yeah. stop you for a second on the residential sure. care? Because you've <laughs> as always, you've you've found our weaknesses. Um we have 
we have been struggling with this kind of side issue of residential care. And let me, I just want to pose a question. There's, there's some, there's some messy language in state law. So we're, we're a little unclear uh, on what the state law requires and we've seen conflicting stuff, but just from a Alameda perspective, residential care is, there's small and there's large. So the six and fewer people living there or six or more. Why don't we do do we care as shared living? Do we care? Yeah, that's the question. Why don't we do it just as shared living, which is if it's right building envelope constrains how many? And I am in support of that seven or five. Like it doesn't matter. I'm in support of that. But we would want to say in the residential care, it's constrained by building envelope. Yep. 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 Just like shared living. Yeah. R5, we are not allowing ADUs, which is kind of weird. And I'd like them to be there, please. Wait a second. That's not right. That can't be right. It's not there. It, it, it was just an oversight. So please add that in. Uh, yes, sir. Same thing in R6. Uh, I like what Petaluma did. And so on page 37, I think we should strike out gasoline service stations and not build any more in Alameda. So I am proposing that to the board that we should strike that out. Um, on on same 37, number five, we struck out self-operated laundries. I'm not sure why. And uh, given that there are many buildings in Alameda that don't have laundry, I think keeping them in C1 is self-operated makes sense. So I'm not sure. I, I'm not, I don't think I'm in favor of dropping that. Um, let me see. I think we had it. I think we had figured we had it already approved somewhere else. Uh, not that I found. Because uh, when we talked about the laundry facilities, it, it specifically in other areas does not include self-operated. Oh, I guess we had laundries and cleaning agencies. Yeah, that that's different. Uh, according to uses elsewhere. Um, when we talk about the adaptive reuse residential density waiver, we, we bring in the term housing units, where really I think we mean dwelling units. What page? Uh, 77. Thank you. Um, I am going to reiterate on page 89 for ADUs. I, I, I would like us to not restrict the construction of ADUs to only non-habitable space. If someone has a large house with like three parlors and, you know, multiple bedrooms, why can't they divide those bedrooms and parlors into ADUs? So I would really like us to seriously consider removing that requirement. It's, um, if I can I just comment on that, I, it, I'm glad you raised it's that. It's state law, yeah. That I, is state law. No, that's state law, but it's an interesting question. I've been meaning to ask Alan Ty about this because I, I marked this and I never got around to asking him. Here's the question, it, uh, that's state law. But if we, if we have a new provision in our housing, in our zoning that says, you can adaptively reuse an existing building and add as many units as you want. 
and you're exempt from density standards, then why would we limit ADUs to just unhabitable space? I mean, it's it seems like we've kind of already opened the door for people to add units anywhere in their building, whether it's habitable or not. So why would we limit ADUs to just uninhabitable space? It seems to me, once we decided to say, hey, if you want to adaptively reuse an existing residential building to add units and you're not changing the exterior of the building, we've kind of already Yes, I yeah, I would I would absolutely agree with that. I think initially we we tried to stick with the letter of state law because it was still fairly new. Our understanding was we needed to follow state yeah. law in the strictest sense. But now that HCD has uh, opined on the issue that cities have the really are encouraged to kind of um, push the issue to promote as many housing units ADUs as we as we possibly can, then I would say yes we could definitely modify this to um, eliminate that restriction. Okay. Um, I, wanna, I wanna thank Karen Bay for bringing it up. And I think the idea of, of defining retail oriented areas that have kind of the requirement of having retail on the street, you know, it could be our shopping centers. It could be, you know, Park Street from the bridge to here, Webster from central to there, South Shore Center, Alameda Landing, Marina Landing, Harbor Bay, the stations, uh, you know, those little markets, it would, it, it would be an impact to the neighborhood for those little markets to disappear. Um, so uh, I really like that. And if staff could figure out a way to make that work, uh, I completely agree with Karen Bay on that. Can I just comment on that just real quickly? Yep. We, um, first of all, thank you, Karen Bay, for bringing this issue up at the last meeting. We did make a bunch of changes throughout. I didn't highlight it in my presentation tonight, but I think we talked a little bit about it in the staff report to reinforce that concept that we really need to preserve retail. In terms of the what Karen was talking about tonight, um, we discussed that um, at length at the staff of the staff team and. What we realize is we actually, these are overlay districts and these are adding, these are, we're adding regulations to regulations that already exist. Alameda has got a fairly refined process right now of limiting ground floor commercial space on Park Street and Webster Street and the shopping centers to retail. There is a, a process whereby you can go through did I just cut myself off? You know, there, there, there is a process in Alameda already where if you want to do non-retail, like nail salon or office space, you have to go through a use permit process on Park Street, Webster Street, shopping centers. So um, we already have in place ways to prevent that from happening. Um, okay. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for that. And I saved the best for last, uh, transit-oriented housing. Yes. Um, I think we've been both too liberal and too conservative. How do you like that? Um, I, yeah, as you know, I don't want to leave our zoning up to a, what is the current state of a bus line? I, I want us to define what it is. And if, we, if something changes, we can change it. I don't want it to change just because something changed. So, and when I say too conservative, 
there are many places I want us to say is transit-oriented housing. Tilden Way, all of Tilden Way, Lincoln from Park to Webster, Park from the bridge to Encinal, Santa Clara from Broadway to Webster, Webster from Central to the Tunnel, Constitution from Lincoln to Marina Village, Central from Webster to Sherman, Encinal from Central to Broadway, Otis from Westline to the bridge, Shoreline from Westline to Broadway, Apisado, the entire thing, you know, from Webster to Maine, and basically the same thing for the two-lane or originally two-lane roads in Harbor Bay. I would apply that same thing to Alameda Point, but Alameda Point is such a mess to deal with in terms of density that I, I, I would if I could uh, say, you know, where we have the two-lane roads or what were originally two-lane roads, any parcel on those get that extra thing if they do the small units. I like the small units. I like the thousand or less. Um, but I wanted to find it. I want to give a list of here it is where we're doing it. I I agree with AAPS. I think a quarter is too much. I would like to start with the parcels that are adjoining these segments. I could even go as far as a parcel adjoining those parcels. Uh, but I would like to start there and see where how it goes from there. And so did you get my reasoning for what I picked, which is those that are on large roads, but the, the four lane roads or what originally were four lane roads, those that are on existing high frequency bus lines, those are areas where we, we do this. It's, you know, it's much less of an impact on the neighborhood and it's a good place to do it because transit in and out of there is better. We have the bike lane plans for those large roads. So, you know, it's not just about bus transit, but also biking and walking. And I think that is what I would like us to say in terms of transit-oriented housing waiver is that I think we ended up with maybe more than we had before, maybe not, maybe the same, but I like the idea of doing it, but saying where it is. Base it on today's, where the today bus is. Essentially map it. Map, map it. it. Map it. Map it. But I see no reason why Lincoln and Tilden uh, shouldn't have the same thing as Santa Clara. Even though uh, we don't necessarily have high quality transit there today. Exactly. But it is a place that is amenable to higher traffic because of the, the widths of the roads. You know, in Encinal, um, you know, it, it is immutable to higher transit. So, and believe it or not, that is the end of my uh, comments. So thank you. Thank you, very helpful. Thank you, Board Member T. Uh, Board Member Cisneros. You're muted. There, okay. <laughs> After two years, you think you get used to it. Um, I just want to say Never. thank you so much, Alan, for that extensive uh, feedback and review. Um, we're lucky to have you <laughs> on the board. So uh, that was really great. And I agreed a lot with um, your comments. And I, I really just have two high level uh, comments slash questions 
based on the discussion, uh, based on the public comment, um, uh, with um, uh, the review of and concern over retail leakage, um, I just want to make sure the the large format um, designation, like we do have language about avoiding like superstores or big retail, right? So um, yes, we do. Yeah. So with this. Uh, yeah, new designation, um, I think it will just uh, further incentivize the, the type of retail that we want in, in Alameda. So uh, I, I just wanted to make sure I understood that and we were addressing Karen's concerns because I think she brought up a lot of great points in that regard. Um, yes, yeah. we do and, have a superstore, large format store provision already on the books that essentially discourages it and puts it through an extra review process if somebody does come forward. Uh, great. And then uh, just to clarify from my earlier question with um, Bridgeside, uh, I also, I think like so much what board member Hom uh, was bringing up is uh, we, I think would like to see housing as well as a retained um, shopping center or grocery store and, and uh, retail there. So I think that's like, yeah, just our, our curiosity for, um, well, why? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to interrupt you. You finished. No, yeah, no, just why it should be considered you know, it, for the community. It's, I think it's an interesting, I think Bridgeside, we should take a, a look at it. It was nice to hear AAPS's comments about the Bridgeside Shopping Center. I think we all agree it's an interesting opportunity site. We have not had a lot of positive feedback from Bridgeside, but it was just sold, we read in the newspaper. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think one of the things that the staff team will do tomorrow when we regroup on this is really ask ourselves, maybe it is the simplest and best thing to do is just apply the multi, the multi, the, the, that shopping center overlay to Bridgeside, um, you know, and use the same sort of ratios, the same sort of approach. Just let's just treat it the same as we do South Shore and Marina Village and Alameda Landing. That might be the simplest and easiest way to do that. And, and just put it in that same group. I think part of the reason why we didn't in the beginning is because we realized that site is actually four or five different parcels and that there might be different ownership, at least for a couple of the parcels. Mm. Yeah. So, but the same situation applies to Marina Village and we still, we're still applying to overlay. Yeah. So. I mean, for the housing element itself, just to remind everybody, we, based on the meetings and the response that we've received from all the property owners, the two, the two sites that we called out in the housing element were South Shore Shopping Center and Alameda Landing because we've had very, and Harbor Bay, three sites. Um, all three, the property owners or some group of property owners has said, yes, we are gonna build housing if we get this rezoned. Um, but Alan's right, Marina Village and Bridgeside. If you, unfortunately, those shopping centers are split up into multiple ownerships mm -hmm. and it just makes it, much more difficult, you know, lucky yeah. owns a block and the gas station owns a chunk and the, you know, so even, even reading in the newspaper, you know, Bridgeside sold, I, I'm not even yet sure what that actually means. Like yeah. one of the, <laughs> I was curious one of the five that, parcels yeah. was sold, like, oh, well that's, yeah. you know, it's not mm -hmm. really clear, um, but we will definitely be looking at that a little more closely over the next month. 
Okay, that's helpful. Yeah, and I understand that I think it's a statutory requirement that it has to be feasible um, exactly. at designated site. So um, yeah, I don't want to shoot us in the foot <laughs> with this. So, um, but yeah, if there's a there there, then um, it does seem like a really great opportunity site. Um, and then uh, related to this whole transit-oriented uh, waiver, um, I I kept going back and forth as like we were going through this housing element discussion and series of meetings, and um, intuitively um, you think how smaller units um, do encourage more transit, uh, public transportation use, and less car usage, and so that's. I think what originally um, uh, had my support for the way it was originally outlined. Um, but, you know, the more I think about it, it's, and I think the research also shows it's more about the parking. So to the extent that we could have incentivized, like, um, and we have that already in our legislation. Um, uh, you know, I think maybe we don't want to be so restrictive. Um, with the square footage of the units um, and have the market determine and just encourage as much, um, you know, public transportation use and having, you know, bicycle uses, uh, bike use, excuse me, bicycle parking, um, et cetera, and little parking as possible. So um, I think, you know, that goes into this larger discussion. Okay, so like, what does the market say about like, um, developments that do successfully with little to no parking. So I think that's like the discussion that needs to be had. And so that's one piece. And then the other, um, I'd be open to revisiting the um, amount, um, the, like the one fourth acre. Um, I think that's a fair point to maybe wanna look more closely at the uh, high quality corridor aspect. Um, and I also just want us to be open-minded thinking about the future transit that we would have in our community. Should we have a bar? Should we have light rail, et cetera, et cetera. So um, yeah, those are, I think, my thoughts on that. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Vice President Ruiz. Again, um, Andrew and, and the team, thank you so much for the um, ongoing work that you have um, been doing, also your patience with all of us, uh, all the ongoing comments that we are giving you and we're about to give you as well as community feedbacks. Uh, so just um, a few thoughts. I don't think I have that many. One is looking at definitions, um, page three, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, page when we talk about defining building height, um, if the, there's a couple of things as I was reading that definition in terms of building height, it's like, well, how do you define grade? And I was able to find that. So that makes sense to me. Then we talk, then the, the second thing that came to mind was, okay, what about elevator overruns, stay, stair overruns and, you know, penthouses. Then I realized that's covered in um, section 30.5.8. So I think you'd be good to let under the definition cross-reference to that. So people know that there are exceptions within this definition because right in at first glance, that um, definition looks a little bit too overly simplified. 
Um, then other comments um, comparing the high quality transit corridor definition on page seven versus uh, page nine major transit stops. Um, high quality transit corridor, um, I echo what board member Cisneros says, it only talk about bus stop and we need to be a little more forward, forward thinking. When we when you fast move, fast forward to a major transit stop, we talked about rail, ferry, et cetera. So I think the two may want to correlate a little bit more. Um, so just consider, are we limiting high quality transport only to bus? Yeah. And I, may I just of interrupt course. you for a minute? I, huh? I think we have a sort of a, a question that we have to resolve. Staff wrote this transit overlay district very with, with a certain concept in mind. If there is high quality transit, which in the cases of Alameda really are about bus lines. Mm -hmm. We don't have rail yet. We don't have BART yet. We do have ferry terminals, but kind of the way we've talked about the ferry terminals in, in our meetings is, if you live next to the ferry terminal, but that's the only, like you can't actually, I mean, you can get to San Francisco, but it's not, you can't live just with the tramp, with the ferry terminal. Like it's, you know, how do you get to the grocery store? How do you get to the, I mean, it's just not a, um, so, but we, so we designed this transit overlay to say, hey, if you are in proximity to an existing high quality transit line, which is essentially a bus line in mm -hmm. Alameda, then you should get this, the benefit of this. We did this, there is a different approach, which is no, if you are on a existing or planned high transit corridor. I mean, we know where we want our high transit corridors to be in the future. We are building them. We do feel like that is the future. I mean, you know, the Ralph Apizzotto out to the Seaplane Lagoon, we have, we do have a bus line. We do have a ferry terminal. It didn't quite meet our definition of high transit yet. That's mm -hmm. why we wrote it this way. We're like, if you come in today and you're within a quarter mile of that, you're not going to qualify. But in four years from now, you probably will because that service is going to be a heck of a lot better and it will automatically. So we, 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 we designed something that could, the map that goes along with it would change as the transit developed. But we don't have to do it that way. We could do it more along the lines of, Commissioner Teague's yep. sort of approach, which is just call it out, like yep. call it out. And it's not just where it is today, but it's where we want it to be in the future. In, in that case, I agree with um, Commissioner Teague's recommendation. I, I, I'm in support of that. Okay. Okay. And then um, um, we talk about, um, did we talk about hotel and motel? Um, research, the comment I, um, Karen Bay provided, I think that makes sense to change it onto a CC zone to allowable use rather than use permit required. I don't know if we mentioned that earlier, but um, just one of that in the, um, I thought hotels were already permitted by right. In the it, it was under a um, conditional use permit. In the That's CC. Yeah, it's page 42. 
Um, yeah, so that's also in her letter. And let me see. Yep, you're right. Okay. Yeah. Then um this is just a Question, I know in other zones, other um, resident art zone, we talk about when um, a property is adjacent to um, other residential zones that the building needs to step back, step down for the first 20 feet. Um, on page 47, which is under uh, multifamily MF districts, now we didn't say anything about stepping down. And I was just questioning, do we want to consider that as well? So in a multifamily zone, when it's adjacent to other lower density zones, we will hold the, the height for the first 20 feet. That's just, you know, a, a thought. I saw that in the other zones, the nine here. Something to consider. I, I think that makes sense. Just so we have consistency between exactly. the zones. And yeah. This is a cleanup of an old zone. So right, right. Right. Okay. And then um page 62. Yes, we need to delete the graphic because if I read the verbiage, that is not the graphic that I came to mind. So yeah, we're gonna delete that graphic. Yeah, because, um, yeah, that it doesn't is not it. right. The, the concept now is if your residential zone next to you, the height limit is 30 feet, then for 20 feet within the property line, you have to respect that height line, line that height limit. So, and then on um, page 78, uh, when we talk about private balcony open space, um, the requirement says at least two thirds of its perimeter needs to be unenclosed. What it does is actually um, precludes any kind of recessed balconies to be counted because if you have a recessed balcony, you only have the front that's open. So, Which, right. where where are you reading? I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Page seventy-eight. Yep. Sub bullet B as a board attached. Private balcony attached to a dwelling unit with an area of a oh. And then it says unenclosed, provided such balcony is unenclosed on at least two thirds of its perimeter. So if we have a recessed balcony, you know what I'm saying? Where it's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Instead of a attached, but it's recessed, you automatically only have the front that, that's open and it doesn't make sense that it doesn't count. So, so your, your, your second suggestion would be just and the sentence after five feet. Yeah, maybe the frontage. You know, so for example, if we have a recessed balcony, the the front open, if they want to build a pilaster to enclose or something, it cannot be enclosed a certain percentage. Right. Okay. So that's just something to consider. Let me see. What's next? Okay, and then um, in terms of your questions regarding shopping center commercial space requirement, 
I think at a minimum, we should retain what, instead of prescribing how many square footage and what the um, retail requirements is per acre, how about at a minimum, we need to retain what is there. Um, so that if we want to demolish a shopping center, we have to replace at the minimum what is in kind there right now. Um, just to simplify the regulation. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. okay. I think are you saying, yeah, just clarification there. Um, are you saying what's the active retail right now? Because they're a dormant retail, meaning replace, because now there may be less use for the amount of retail that is there. Well, uh, but we also want to preserve it, right? Well, there's, it's- That's the question. That's the question. And I think yeah. it's like, if you walk around the northwest corner of the South Shore Shopping Center, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's just, it, it, I walked, I walked that area the other day at lunchtime. I'm like, oh my goodness. I mean, it's just, there's just hardly anything. There's just empty buildings. And, mm -hmm. and as you walk around there, you're like, yeah. And it's not surprising. Like this is just a weird area for retail. Um, you know, it's there may be someday for something other than retail, you know, medical services or something like that. But it's, uh, it's one of those areas where you just feel like, you know, the kind of retail that Karen Bay is talking about and that we all sort of, you know, so when you look at the South Shore Shopping Center, which is just an example, I'm not using it. It's a, I mean, it's just an example there. You do walk around you, that central core area, like, oh yeah, we got to keep all this, even though there's some vacancies there. Like, oh, this is the core. This is the heart of the shopping center. You get out to those perimeter areas, um, especially that Northwest quadrant. It's like, oh my goodness, no, this would be okay to go re residential. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, and the other thing we just wanted to be a little bit careful. So you have, well, one property owner, just because of whatever has happened over the years, maybe before they even owned it, somebody built a bunch of space and it's just sitting vacant, but we're not going to let you tear that down. But some other property owner built less retail. So somehow they get the benefit of the fact that they just have less retail. So that's why we thought it might be good to have a sort of standard sort of per acre ratio that applied evenly across the different. Um, so sort of a standard, I don't know. It's an interesting, it's an interesting problem. Um, it's not something very we typically do. Because, you know, the the retail landscape is changing right and and we i just don't want to be in a point and and i don't know maybe president sahiba has different experience but from my conversation with most our um most of the developers they you know underwrite retail as zero income you just don't even you don't even count that not in your performance because it's so unpredictable you know unless you're purposely building retail for all multifamily mixed-use developers, a lot of them say we, we don't count retail. If it comes, great. If it doesn't, it's a zero. It's, um, we've yeah. had some conversations with the shopping center owners who describe themselves as shopping center developers, as retail developers. They're like, this is our business. And they even say to us, like, Andrew, yeah, these numbers probably work for now. Whether they will work in five, 10 years, 
we frankly just don't know. Like mm-hmm. these numbers may be way too high. We just yeah. don't know because the retail landscape is so uncertain. So, you know, I think we, we our approach was, well, let's, 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 we need something for now. Cause what we have to do is we cannot afford to have somebody buy a shopping center and then just go in there and tear everything out and say, Oh, I'm just building housing. Cause you just gave me this brand new overlay. Yeah. So, no. you know, we kind of, you know, we, my gut tells me these numbers might be a little high that we might be revising them down in five to 10 years. I'd rather be in that situation than a situation where somebody ran in and all of a sudden said, hey, nope, you got to give me a demo permit. You can't stop me. No, I, I hear you. And another so, way is also maybe give a flexibility of retail slash commercial. So it can be, like you said, medical offices or other professional services. Well, that was the other, that was the other issue that we, we talked about internally. It's, it's going to be, you know, what we didn't want to get into the situation and say, well, we're going to go out there and and figure out, well, you've got vacancy, so that doesn't count. And you have a nail salon, so that doesn't count. So we really tried to create a standard that was based on non-residential existing floor area, whether it's retail or not. Now, -hmm. what can go in there in the future is subject to the underlying zoning and the processes we have already in place. But Mm -hmm. it's a- it's an interesting problem. Um, it's not something we've tip, had to deal with in the past, but it is something I think we have to think about going into the future. Yeah. And then um, your other in responding to your questions on the transit-oriented housing waiver. Um, I agree with board member Curtis that a lot of this is gonna be market-driven so there's there's a couple of factors, right? One, um, I do think that every unit requirement is a little bit too onerous. And I also know that by this date, um, TCAC, you know, California tax credit for affordable housing, um, they require 25% of um, units will be three bedrooms and the minimum square footage requirement for three bedrooms is 900 square feet. So you can do a three bedroom in the one, you know, one. Interesting. Yeah, that, that's the TCAC requirement. And that's the minimum net rentable square foot. So you don't count the walls. Um, so I think we can do three bedroom unit in the 1000 square foot requirement. And so, I do think that every new housing unit may be too much. Maybe we require a certain percentage, like 80% or 75%, so that there's a balance and allow allow some flexibility in, in there. Um, so that, that's just kind of some um, information regarding what state defines the state funding requirements for affordable housing. And then um, in terms of parking, you know, parcels, that like shopping centers or even along high quality transit corridors where the parcels are really small. A lot of developers are doing site assemblage now. So I wouldn't preclude anybody from buying out small lots and combine them together. Just just kind of, we need to brace for that going in, eyes wide open. So, okay, just kind of a little bit of information. 
And that's all I have. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, board member, huh? Yeah, thank, um, thank you, Andrew, and uh, great comments from all the board members. So they, you guys covered a lot of my thoughts and brought up some additional great ideas um, for me to ponder. Uh, I'll first talk about the, your question, Andrew, regarding shopping center. And it carries into some of the, I think, really excellent comments that Karen Bay brought up in her letter. Um, I don't know where to start. Shopping centers, I, I really like the fact that you are proposing a minimum square footage because that kind of from a policy wise, you know, whether it's the right number or not, obviously, you know, as we're all saying, retail is so much in transition, you don't know what the right number is. But I do think that is too restrictive. We say you have to replace uh, in kind because retail is really changing. When I've talked to retail developers, the old shopping centers, um, they have a lot more space than they really need with, with e-commerce and all of that. For instance, a typical retail store is a lot deeper and they have a lot of storage space. That's no longer necessary. So newer shopping centers for the same tenant, uh, you know, uh, are actually asking for less square footage and they do much better um, sales per square foot too, because they depend on the e-commerce the Amazons, not on Amazon, but just all the various delivery options that are now available. Um, like for instance, Macy's, even though they're kind of like a little bit of a dinosaur, they're, they're downsizing because they don't, they realize they don't need as much uh, um, store space, you know? So I think retail is really changing. And every developer I've talked to that talk about shopping centers, there's two kinds. There's one that wants to build shopping centers, not interested in residential. And there's one that want to do convert the shopping center to residential. And they want to do as little re retail as possible. You know, so the, and the ideas that you combine the two and they work together to create a nice mixed use, mixed use plan. But I, I like the direction you're heading with the, the shopping center with the, the minimum square footage. I know it would just be something that needs to be monitored to see you know, what the trend is. Um, some of Karen's comments uh, I thought were really good. And it's, it's wonderful, uh, Andrew, that you've clarified the, you know, the commercial retail distinction that there is additional clearance requirements to, to, you know, to do say commercial purses, what we consider traditional brick and mortar retail uses. <laughs> Um, I also like, like the comment and appreciate it, Andrew, that you were saying that we already have something in place to um, discourage big box, not discourage necessarily, but require additional level review for big box or large format stores. Uh, because um, I can see that, you know, at South Shore, you might certainly allow a larger big box store, but where you're trying to promote a little bit more neighborhood serving retail um, and some of the other shopping centers, um, you know, trying to discourage the really large format that you know, takes over and prevents a nice multi-tenant neighborhood serving shopping center. So I thought those were really good comments. Um, the, the one comment I had about hotels, I thought that was an interesting comment that Karen brought up. They should be permitted uses. My only caveat to that is uh, I'm not, I have, don't have the map, Sony map in front of me, but if a hotel's being proposed, you know, right on like a very pedestrian orient location, like uh, Park Street or Webster, you don't necessarily want 
to see that automatically permitted. Because just like re residential uses, you want to promote that they activate the ground floor of the hotel. So it might be a permitted use, but you might want to have a little bit of requirements that the ground floor needs to be activated with yep. retail uses. So that's my only comment about hotels. But otherwise, yeah, they, you know, as, as a use themselves, you know, it shouldn't necessarily be um, use permit all along. But, you know, quite honestly, hotels can be more of a dead space than residential, you know, because you sometimes get a high vacancy on the weekdays or the weekends, depending on the hotel. Um, just a couple of comments. I, I, I took a good look at the AAPS letter, and there's some in, intriguing proposals in there that I thought I kind of voice openness to considering. Um, and it's kind of devils into detail, of course, but these suggestion about a site or setback for corner lots facing Webster and Park sounds interesting, but I would say only if it applies to, you know, fairly wide lots where additional setback won't make the building look kind of strange, you know? Uh, so that is something that I think from a design standpoint would be nice to see, you know, if you have a setback on the front frontage, then maybe on the on a corner lot too. Um, there are some comments about design standards for really residential districts or the, the foins of big boxy kind of residential units. And you'll see examples of that in other cities where someone maximizes the height limit and they propose like basically a flat uh, residential structure. And it's very incompatible in a residential neighborhood where everything is pretty much sloping roofs, which is kind of the condition in uh, Alameda. So exploring you know design standards i'm not sure whether zoning standard is right but explore some design concepts to try to encourage slope roofs so that they're compatible with the residential setting which are predominantly slope roofs so i thought that was kind of a good suggestions and also uh, there's an idea that uh, if you're along in an area i'm not sure whether it's one block or two blocks or whatever but if you're in an area where there's primarily single family homes um, you know, requiring the second story to be stepped back. It's a good idea. I thought it might already be in, be in the design standards. I don't know. I, I see that typical uh, in, in a lot of design guidelines, whether it's codified nowadays with objective design standards is another question. Um, regarding uh, bridge side, I, I, I like the fact of, of allowing, it seems like a good site for residential and, and it's, what generally happens is when a, usually residential tends to be the highest and best use. So that almost might encourage, if it allows residential, allows for a little bit of consolidation of the lots. There might be economic incentives for that to happen with residential use. Um, so those are the comments. Okay, the, the main one <laughs> regarding that whole transit zone is something I struggled with quite a bit, quite honestly. So I'm back and forth like many of the board members and staff on it. When, when I thought of the concept of a transit zone, what was really attractive to me was a promoting affordable housing along the transit corridor, which did make natural sense for two reasons. You have you know, better transit access along these routes. And secondly, the arena, the city's arena really Tell, tells us we really need to promote 
affordable housing in more locations than just the 15% inclusionary requirement. So the transit corridor seemed to me to be a really good way to achieve that. However, what I've always struggled with was that thousand foot standard. To me, that standard, yeah, most smaller units and on surface, I go, yeah, that, that makes sense. But more I kind of looked at it, it really doesn't promote affordable units by itself because in checking around, you see a lot of projects these days where the units are smaller. I, I sent you guys some information on that. They're smaller and they're all market rate, very expensive units. And I think that alone doesn't really promote affordability. So I like the discussion about incentivizing development by re removing, you know, kind of maybe design a approach like you mentioned, Andrew, the more we kind of provide incentives by loosening the development standards, that would probably be probably the best way as far as market driven, kind of some of the comments that Curtis was making uh, to, you know, to, I think what I see for that standard is the open space standards are, re, are, are kind of relaxed. The, um, the, the height limit, if you happen to be in an area where the zoning only allows, say, 30 feet, you can go up to 40. So it kind of relaxes that. And, you know, there, there are state laws already in place that, that allows significant reduction in parking requirements along transit corridors, um, the density bonus, laws in place, then, and further being proposed to provide, uh, require cities to, you know, to, to allow for, for deviate, further deviations from, from uh, zoning standards, you know, using the density bonus law. So the more that we provide these kind of incentives, and maybe there's also something about streamlining the development approval of these projects, you know, I don't know whether that makes sense in Alameda, you guys do a pretty good job of getting these projects through, but whatever we can do to reduce the economic impact, to me, those items by itself, not by itself, but in combined combination would help promote more affordable housing. I, I'm not sure the thousand foot standard really does much, I guess, when I really come down to it. And if you did want to do a thousand foot standard, if that's the goal to use that standard to promote affordable housing units, then I think you need to think about a, something that considers the square footage of, um, of the, you know, studios and one bedrooms. I, I do agree, um, I think it was brought up the last meeting, thousand foot standards, one of the unintended consequences of that is that it's, to me, it seemed to limit, you know, larger um, bedroom units. And as Alan was saying, that's identified as a, a key requirement in Alameda as well as most cities. So having a oh, standard that might be a distance, disadvantage and you know hcd might even bring that up quite honestly yeah well that that's if i may that's interesting i hadn't thought of it that way but you what you articulated was maybe a two-tiered system where we say look if you're within a certain radius of transit we're going to make it easy for you to do it, build a unit mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's you know and we're going to relieve you of, of one or two of the requirements mm -hmm. to incentivize you if you're willing to to make them very small, very affordable units, well, then we're going to even relax a second tier of things. Yeah, yeah. So it's a way of saying, look, if you really need to build, you know, two big units for whatever your purpose is, fine. But if you're willing to go the extra step and really get us what, you know, the smaller units, 
the more affordable ones, then we will relax some additional standards. Yeah, that could be a two-tier thing. I know um, that is not popular, but I'm kind of a fan of if you're if, if you're incentivized with more density, you may have a higher inclusionary requirement. Yep. You know, I mean, you see that. I mean, that's the case now. Made a point. Obviously, along the, this corridor, you know, like you were mentioning, Andrew, they're really small parcels. So, you know, I mean, if you're talking about probably under 10 units, it's that's really, uh, you know, makes it economic and feasible. But maybe if someone actually, uh, you know, has a significantly large unit, they're proposing 20 to 30 units or something, uh, you know, having a higher inclusion requirement. My, my main my main objective, you know, goal would be promoting affordable, more affordable housing units where they make sense, which is along transit corridors. I also agree with um, um, board member Teague that we really should map it. Uh, I'm not, maybe I'm a little bit more pragmatic about it, <laughs> but I, I certainly think, I think Lincoln has an opportunity, uh, but as a start, you know, maybe it's kind of a phase thing. I know it's a chicken and egg kind of situation, but you know why don't we first start out with where the designated transit corridors are per the state mm -hmm. condition, and we can certainly expand, you know, to the next step as once we kind of see um, how it proceeds. But I'm all for expanding where we can, but maybe let's take it one step at a time because we. And, you know, public perception is also something I'm sensitive to. One, yeah. one final comment I, I want to make, there's, there's this comment about, you know, no other city is upzoning a significant amount of their zoning blanket. One, one thing I would say is that, you know, Alameda is also a city that has R1 through R6, but system zoning is basically the same density throughout. So when we say no other city is doing a blanket rezoning, that's because most cities have variant densities in their R1 to R6, whatever they call it, you know. And what you guys are, what staff and you know what's being discussed essentially is proposing a zoning structure that's comparable to most other cities where the density varies by zoning district. So. Part of me says to say that no other cities do what we're doing. Well, no, I don't think very many cities are, are essentially have R1 through R6, but not really, you know what I mean? So anyway, so those, those are some of my final comments, but you guys have done a wonderful job taking care, listening to our comments. It's been a long process. And every time you guys come to us, I always feel it is just always an improvement, you know? And uh, yeah, so thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, board member. Okay, uh, I'll just make a couple comments and then we can move to the next agenda item. Um, but yeah, thank, thanks to the board and also the members of the public that spoke. I, I think all of it was very informative and I'll continue on the thread that board member Hom has with uh, the transit-oriented housing, which uh, as well as other folks have, have um, spoken about. I think the important thing, and we've talked about this a lot with uh, the public, is increased density um, 
how do we manage that with the traffic? And the public, of course, always has um, some level of concern that as you continue to increase density, what are we doing with our roads? What are we do how, how are we managing that? And I think obviously with transit-oriented development, what we're trying to say is that increase the density here because there's an alternative from uh, vehicles that you'll you'll be able to do something different. Well, I think then we need to clearly state that when you do higher density, you have to start limiting parking. And in this uh, transit-oriented scenario where we're you know relaxing the maximum density limits, which I which I agree makes sense, and I agree with all the commentary on the square thousand square feet. I'm, I I don't want to keep um, you know, dwelling on that here for, for any longer, I, I, I completely agree that we, that has to be re, reworked. I, I think the important thing here is that we have to consider how do we start limiting parking? Because then while we're increasing density, we're not putting more cars on the road. We're saying, hey, there's an alternative here. People are gonna build more here. It actually makes construction more affordable too if you don't build parking, quite honestly, and not many people are building below grade parking here in Alameda. So that means you are going to provide more housing if you don't build parking. So I think all of it is positive as you make it very clear that by taking the limits off density, you are also putting real limits on parking. So I think those two need to be connected and how you wanna connect it if you want you know, in special cases to have a conditional use permit to allow for parking at, at a maximum ratio or whatever. I don't know if you want to go through all that kind of stuff, uh, which San Francisco does in, in certain districts. But I, I would just say that uh, we, we need to make that very clear that increased density being, means decreased parking. And that will start to help um, create clarity also for the neighborhood and the community at large of how this is going to be balanced. So that's really my only comment because I think a lot was covered already. It's super helpful. Thank you very much. Okay, great. Okay, so that was a very constructive workshop. Uh, I think we can, uh, and, and I know Andrew, as you mentioned on the, um, at the beginning, we're still gonna get some comments back from the state, we assume, uh, which will Yeah, we hope, we, we, let's see. So this is, where are we now? We're, this is early July, right? Yeah, so you have one more meeting at the end of this month. Alan will tell you a little bit about that at the end of the night. And then you're off in August. We hope to hear from the state mid to late August. So we're targeting first meeting in September um, to have the next uh, planning board meeting to discuss the housing element. We hope to have the, and we'll distribute, as soon as we get it, we'll distribute the state's review of our housing element. And it'll really be their review that really sets the course for the rest of this process. Um, but the zoning will definitely be coming back to the planning board with the housing element at the next at the next meeting, which won't be until, if all goes as planned, early September. 
Okay, great. Give give you and the community a little bit of a break from this housing element for for a month. But really, a planning board. It's you've this. You've all been very gracious about your compliments to staff, and we appreciate it. Um, it really has been a um, a wonderful team effort for us. The planning board. I mean, you've been having workshops on this once, twice a month. I I don't even know how long it's been. It's been over a year since we. I mean, it's just been nonstop, and at every step of the way, you have all given us great ideas, good direction. Um, and we really couldn't have done it without you. So thank you so much. And we're not done yet, but <laughs> um, we're all, we're getting there. We're getting there. So thank you so much. Okay, great. All right, let's move on to agenda item 7B. Uh, this is a, the annual review for the reshape uh, development agreement. Uh, is there any staff discussion. I'll just really say this is as we've been doing all the annual reviews under state law when the city enters into a development agreement, which is essentially a contract, um, we have to do an annual review. Um, we have reviewed this um, development agreement. Um, we believe they're in compliance. Uh, we're recommending um, that the planning board find them in compliance with their um, development agreement. Um, you will, just as an aside, this is unrelated to tonight, but um, we are actively working with Reshape and the West Midway project. Um, we are hoping to have a workshop on the West Midway slash Reshape project with the planning board also in September. As you know, it's an important part of the housing element as well. So all of these efforts are moving forward sort of in parallel. Okay, That's great. the end of the staff communication. Is there any uh, board questions or clarifications required for this item? Uh, seeing no one's raised their hand, okay. We'll open it up for public comment. If you'd like to speak, um, please raise your hand at the beginning of this uh, topic and we'll be called on. Uh, is there anyone raising their hand? Okay, we'll close public comment period. Uh, we'll go to board uh, deliberations and motions. Uh, board member T. Uh, thank you, staff. Um, I move that we approve the annual report and find them in compliance uh, with good face efforts of the uh, developer agreement. I'll second that. Board member Rothenberg, second. Okay. Uh, Alan, let's take a vote. Sure. Board member Cisneros? Aye. Curtis? Aye. Hom? Aye. Uh, Rothenberg? Aye. Vice President Ruiz? Aye. Board member Teague? Aye. And President Sahaba? Aye. And so that. Motion passes unanimously. Okay, thank you. As we mentioned earlier, we're going to move board elections to the next uh, meeting. So we're now on uh, agenda item 8A, uh, draft meeting minutes uh, uh, for April 11th, 2022. I believe we voted on this once, but it's come back. 
Yeah, just a quick staff remark on that. Um, we, we learned that uh, we actually have to have a quorum of the board to vote on the minutes. So we're bringing the set of minutes back um, for your vote. And just a reminder, um, uh, President Sahaba, Board Member Cisneros, and Board Member Rothenberg were absent at that meeting. But you can vote on it if you have watched the meeting um, video and can attest to um, reviewing that record. Okay, thank you. Uh, is there any board com, uh, questions or clarifications on this? No? Okay, we'll open it up for public comment. Uh, if you'd like to speak on these minutes, please raise your hand. Uh, doesn't look like we have any speakers, correct? That is correct. No one doing okay. we'll, we'll close that public comment period. Um, does anyone now take it back to the board. Any mo uh, anyone want to have a motion here? Um, board member Curtis. I move that the um, minutes be approved as submitted. Okay. I second. Okay. Thank you. Okay, Alan. Let's take a vote. Board member Cisneros. Um, I'll abstain. I didn't see the video. Whether. Uh, Curtis. Aye. Hong. Aye. Uh, Board Member Rothenberg. Aye. Vice President Ruiz. Aye. Board Member Teague. Aye. And uh, President Sahaba. I'll need to abstain. Okay. So that motion passes with um, two abstentions. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, next, uh, item 8B. These are draft meeting minutes for May 9th, 2022. Any board questions or clarifications? No? Uh, oh, yes, uh, board member Teak. Uh, yeah, this is for uh, Ms. Chen uh, about the statement that the city attorney view was that measure A conflicted with state law. I, I'm not sure, I think it was if it, conflicted. Uh, do you remember what the actual answer is? Thank you, Board Member Teague. I believe the minutes don't accurately reflect um, what was stated. What I was saying was that to the extent Measure A is in direct conflict with state housing law, it is preempted, uh, TED, and unenforceable. Thank you for that, and hopefully we can get uh, this corrected. Okay, thank you. Uh, Vice President Reese. Um, are you taking questions or can I give corrections? Uh, just questions. Okay, then I'll come back. Okay. I'll do corrections later. Okay, no worries. Okay, so we'll uh, open it up for public comment. If you'd like to speak on this item, please raise your hand. Uh, no hands raised, is that correct? Okay, we'll close this for public comment. Uh, now we'll go to board deliberations and motion. Uh, Vice President Ruiz. So correction on page five out of 10. Um, third paragraph up. Vice President Ruiz still saw that as a reach 
for this board, she wanted to be very careful and clear about what the board's purview was, not preview. Thank, Thank you. you. Any others from board? Okay, uh, board member T. Yeah, um, I don't know what page, but basically on the discussion of the uh, health and safety, climate, et cetera, action. Uh, uh, I think I'm a planning board member, not a staff member. And the, the question was about retrofitting not new construction, but I, I, I can they check the tape, but it was probably about retrofitting existing buildings, not new construction. Okay, thank you. Yeah, we'll, we'll, I've taken some notes. We'll, we'll revisit the tape, the video and make those updates. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, with those corrections that Vice President Ruiz and, oh, uh, sorry, Board Member Cisneros. Oh, no, no, I discussed your questions. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, is there a motion based on the corrections that were stated along with um, Selena's note early on? So move that we approve. Okay. I second. Okay. Uh, Alan, let's take a vote. Board Member Cisneros? Aye. Curtis? Aye. Han? Oh, I think Board Member Han is uh, muted. <laughs> Sorry, Alan. Abstain. I wasn't at the meeting and did not have a chance to review the tape. Thank you. Uh, Board Member Rothenberg? Aye. Vice President Rees? Aye. Board Member Teague? Aye. And um, President Sahaba? Aye. And so that motion passes six votes and one extension. Okay, great. Um, Thank you. Agenda item nine, staff communications. Uh, Alan, do you have anything for us? Uh, nothing other other uh, other than what I've noted earlier, 916 Union Street, that application will be re-noticed in the future. And then um, for 9B, the oral report for upcoming items. Um, at your next agenda, we have the uh, annual report for Alameda Landing that was continued on um, the consent calendar tonight. And then um, we are bringing back a uh, the Site A development plan and development agreement amendment. This is to um, increase housing capacity at site A. So that's coming at your meeting for um, July 25th. And then August would be your recess and then we'll be back in September. Uh, Board Member Teague, you have your hand raised. Um, two things. One is uh, I, I kind of would like to see 916 Union come to the board. Uh, if possible, there's been enough public comment that I think we need to clear up some things for the public. And I think that's best done in a public hearing uh, in terms of what we can and can't do uh, so that it's on the record and it's very clear. Uh, the, the other item I just wanted to point out, the board members 
Um, the building eye gives you way more information than you want and not necessarily in an order that makes sense. So you may wanna check the minor projects page because that will link to the latest set of plans. Because when I went to the building eye, I saw an old set of plans and there was no obvious way for me to know it was an old set versus a new set. So just be aware when you look, there may be a newer set of plans. Yeah, just a follow up comment on that, um, board member Teague. So on 916 Union Street, um, one thing that we will verify is just to make sure that there's no um, shot clock uh, requirement that we are subject to. Otherwise, we have no problem um, bringing that to before the board. And then just on building I, what, what that does is it's a direct link into our permit system. Um, and since, you know, our planning file is um, all electronic, that that building I file leads you to our electronic files. And we do try to label the files based on date. So from that, you can tell whether they're revised or superseded. But we'll, what we can do, we'll have a system going forward that would clarify it. Uh, alternative would be to go to the um, city webpage. So thank you for that. Thanks, thanks for that clarification. Yeah. Okay. Item 10, written communications. Uh, I think we received all those. Item 11, board communications. <laughs> board members may ask a question for clarification, uh, make brief announcement or brief report. Uh, I'd like to just start by uh, thanking Rona for all her hard work and service on the planning board. Uh, over these past four years, we joined together on the first day and um, I was very appreciative to have Rona as a companion um, as we started off on this board. I also am looking forward to still working with Rona on other things in the future. So um, glad Rona wrote me in on, on some other stuff that she's doing. So um, uh, congrats, uh, congratulations for getting through four years on this board. Uh, I think you, you did an awesome job. The, 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 ple the pleasure and privilege is all mine. I, I, it's really been great um, meeting you, getting involved in city government. I think our city is in good hands with all of this august talent and our, our mayor and her city council and plus the staff. You're so, by sta state of California staff standards, you guys are rock stars. So really loved working with you all. And I hope you'll call on me for support. Uh, not just through AIA California, but independently and um, um, around and um, at a minimum, please do call on me. And thank you all. Thank you, Board Member Rothenberg. Uh, sorry, I was just gonna say um, th thank you. And I think over the last four years, you really instilled on staff kind of to think about the building code and kind of the pragmatism that goes along with building design and what are the code safety code requirements, things that we would factor in. So we've, I think we've done a better job there with your guidance. Oh, well, that's, that's very generous of you. I will make a note as long as we're on the topic of planning departments that AIA California has sponsored a bill to limit the, I forget the bill number, I'll send it to you, to limit how much planning departments in cities and counties in California can post in the web consistent with copyright law. So I hope it doesn't rain on your parade, but I think you do a great job at, in service to the residents of this city and, and carry on. Okay, 
Thank you, board member Hong. Yeah, I just wanted to quickly say, Rona, it was such a joy working with you. I mean, I mean, we all said your insights and contributions of the planning board have been really valuable with your architectural perspective. But I just want to say before COVID unfortunately hit us, you know, we sat next to each other. I just remember coming to the meetings and you were always such a joyful person to talk to and so welcoming um, on my first couple of meetings. And uh, one of the things I miss about us having to go virtual is, you know, coming in to the meeting and having a, a short little chat with you before the meeting, because you were always full of wonderful things to talk about. So I'll miss that. Well, you're most welcome. Uh, board member Curtis. Thank you. Um, I, I just want to echo what everybody else is saying that uh, Rona, you will really been, be missed. And, and personally, I've learned a lot from the contributions that you've made. And um, you've been a real addition to this board. And, and again, I say you will be missed. And good luck to you. The very best of luck. Okay, any, any, uh, oh, uh, Vice President Ruiz. Yes, um, Board Member Rothenberg, I just want to thank you for um, showing me the way in when, we, when I first joined the board and um, always lending your words of wisdom and keep us um, on point with the latest um, code regulations. We really appreciate that. Um, too bad we're not meeting in person because I do miss, you know, the little, <laughs> celebration at um come on the Bengasu. <laughs> well there's always Julie's on Park Street. That's true. You know, that's just true. come on down. And I'm so glad that we're connected on LinkedIn. So I'll be pinging you. Thanks. Uh yeah board members Cisneros. Yeah I'll be quick. Um and I am so sad I didn't get to serve with you in person, uh, Rona, but it really was a pleasure um, working with you these past couple of years. And um, I will wish you the best, but you know, need um, all that luck because you're amazing, so intelligent um, and a great leader on this board. And um, yeah, I'm excited for your next chapter. So I'm sure I will see you soon in town. You will. Thanks, Emma. Okay, um, board member T. Uh, Rona, I will absolutely miss you. So, and everything that everyone has said is absolutely true. Your your experience and knowledge with county and other buildings and what's been involved has always been such a illuminating part of our meeting. So thank you very much. My pleasure. And and should should you revive your Christmas parties, I will bring my biscotti and then everybody. Uh, yes. Well, <laughs> today would have been the the house party for the birthday of the house 127 years, except for COVID. It's quite a house, everyone. You've got to see it. All right. Yeah, that it is. Uh, Okay, uh, agenda item 12, moving on, oral communications. Anyone may address the board on topic, not on the agenda. If you'd like to raise your hand to speak. Do we have anyone from the public wanting to speak? Seeing no hands raised. I don't know the hand. 
Okay, we'll close that and we will adjourn. Thank you, everyone. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye, Take everybody. care. Take care.